MNK Talk YA now presents The Star Touch Queen, Part 2 of the Star Touch series by Roshani Chakshi. M&K Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the first book in the Star Touched Queen series by Roshini Shakshi. Yeah, so it's a duology, but I also, and I'm totally jumping ahead because this is what I do. I don't follow our plan at all. <laughs> I sort of feel like this could have been a standalone. Oh my gosh, I totally agree. I got to the end of this book and I forgot there was a second one and I was like well that was neatly wrapped up and then I was like oh crap we still have a crown of wishes to read and I don't know about you but I have no idea where the second book's gonna go because they didn't leave any cliffhangers I know I'm wondering if we'll like jump ahead or like get into another life or like do maybe I can't remember her name who's the one who they like trap at the end Nariti or something yeah like maybe she gets free or maybe we go back. Maybe her, her half-sister needs help or something. But it's not like an obvious, like I have no real predictions about what happens. Me either. And honestly, like I always am so curious what the publishing behind the scenes factor is when writing books in a series because, you know, obviously if your first book doesn't sell, you're not going to get a second book. So I'm, I always like look at the end of first book so carefully because I'm like as an author how do you like give your fans a satisfying ending if you don't get a second book but if you do get a second book like how do you set them up to look forward to that or hint at what's to come Mm -hmm. and so in this case I thought the author did a great job of sealing off the loose ends like bringing everything to a neat conclusion but I don't feel like she gave us enough of a hint as to what the next book is going to be about. Like, I almost think, gee, if I were reading this, like, would I even want to read the second book? Because, like, it ended so well, I don't feel like a huge urge to pick up the second book right now. Um, So it's just kind of weird from, like, a marketing perspective. Yeah, I'm curious. I also haven't yet, like, read the back or anything because I'm trying to... I didn't want to give anything away for myself, but I also, like, I'm curious if it... Because it's such a beautiful world, and I almost wonder if it's not a true series, but, like, they're just connected story, like, loosely connected stories, or... Like, um, what was that one series we read that was similar to that? With the Vikings? Oh, yeah. What was that one? Um, I can, like, picture the cover, but I can't think of the name of it. That's so bad that we can't remember, but of... We read so many books. Okay, I can't remember the character's name that I, like, finished an hour ago (laughs) by the time we record, so is it really (laughs) shocking that I've forgotten the title of a book? (laughs) Also, when you read, like, 80 books a year like we do, it's, you know, give us a little bit of grace. (laughs) Exactly. It is called Sky in the Deep. Ah, yeah, I would never have gotten that. By Adrienne Young, yeah. And I even follow her on Instagram, and I still wouldn't have come up with that right now. I mean, we read it a year ago, so. But it's just been a weird year, too. I feel like even, like, books mm-hmm. I finished a few weeks ago. Like, I don't. what was the last series we read before this one? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Is that embarrassing? Before, right before this one? Yeah, like, before this book. We read Spin the Dawn. Oh, okay, yeah. I do remember now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's been a year. Oh, man. <laughs> 
I shouldn't be allowed. How am I allowed to have a podcast? This is like, it's because there's no certification, guys. To do what we do, you just like buy a microphone and you start doing it. (laughs) Have an interest and have at it. I think about that with parenting too. I'm like, it seems, I feel like I'm supposed to like study for a test, but like they're just going to let me walk out of the hospital with my baby. Like, (laughs) there's no user guide. Yep. Oh man. Okay. Now that we've gotten off topic. Where did we even leave off? Oh, this half oh. left off where she realized she was married to death. <laughs> uh, married to death itself. Which is like, I mean, that sounds super dire, but really, like, this is a world that has, clearly has supernatural beings and or deities. So he's just the king of the dead. That's all. So I have a couple of just thoughts about the second half. Okay. Some of it, I think, is my own fault because... I usually, like, time my books so that when we're halfway through a book, I, like, finish the first half right before we record, and then I, like, immediately go to the second half. I took a few days off just because of how our recording schedule was, and I just am being lazy with reading. I don't know, but I had trouble getting back into it for some reason with the second half. I don't know if I just spent too much time away from the world or what. I was, like, getting confused almost. Did you feel that way at all? It wasn't you. It wasn't just you because I had the same issue i got really disoriented as to where we were after she leaves the palace Mm -hmm. so we start where she finds the reincarnation pool where like souls are remade that was a cool scene very cool i really like like the cells that she sees where she sees like people atoning for their sins and they're either like digging holes or they're like suspended by chains and i like that we saw her dad again because i I, I i'm like intrigued by their relationship in general and like again he obviously wasn't like a perfect man or father or ruler but he also had some good traits i don't know he's just like he's an interesting character to me i wonder if we'll see him again in the second book but uh yeah that was cool imagery and like a cool new room and seeing her dad again and all of that i i was like tracking along with that part yeah and i and i I really liked that little view into reincarnation that was pretty cool because her father's sin he says was the same one as mine selfishness (laughs) and so he's like atoning and then this is where I got confused because she sees like his hair has gone gray and then she like looks at herself in a pool of water and realizes that like 10 years have passed Mm -hmm. right yeah but even that I kind of buy because we're in a different realm so it makes sense to me that time passes differently like I'm Mm -hmm. I'm still okay with that more or less But then I got confused because she started seeing visions almost. Mm -hmm. Like she sees her early life and she sees Amar kind of like guarding her. Like in one scene he's like protecting her from being bitten by a snake. And then she sees another vision of a woman giving him a blossom and she gets the sense that she's someone that he loved. Mm -hmm. And at this point I was confused because Nuriti comes back and she says that Amar has always been collecting girls like her like girls with bad horoscopes Mm -hmm. and has been using them and then I got confused because I thought I was like okay first of all where she is now is she in like a different life like is she in a different she's not in a different body but I just wasn't sure if she had like died and then been reincarnated or if she was just herself but 10 years later 
I think she was herself, but 10 years later. But like, I still like don't understand. There was something where he couldn't tell her what was going on until the new moon or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Remember that? And I still feel like we never got a perfect explanation for why he couldn't talk in between. Unless, I mean, I guess it was just that early explanation that like the magic is weaker than or whatever. But I sort of feel like... I didn't, I didn't fully understand the rules and restrictions that were happening in, the, in this realm compared to what was happening in, like, her home realm. Yeah, and then Nerite is the one who says that Amar actually is going to kill her on the new moon, right? So, like... And then she overhears him talking about that. <laughs> right, right. And so she starts to suspect Amar, and then uh, Nerite asks Maya to bring her Amar's noose and to destroy the memory tree. And she says that he doesn't want her to find out who she was in a past life. And then she's like, if you do this, we can free all the other girls who were trapped by him. Which is like, seems reasonable. Yeah, but I still, I mean, I guess she recognizes Nerite. I, I was, like, kind of confused by what she was, like, remembering versus how she recognized her because she, like, couldn't actually remember. I was sort of like, why are you trusting this girl so completely? I wanted her to, like, have a more specific memory. I don't know. I mean, I kind of get it. She trusted her too easy. Yeah, exactly. And then, then I got super confused because, so she does steal Mars noose. And I kind of disliked that because she says that she, like, uses her magic to, like, make him fall asleep. And I didn't like that all of a sudden she was, like, using her magic and it was very easy and, like, there was really no struggle period with that. I guess that's a minor detail, but I was just kind of like, oh, you just used your magic to put a spell on him and, like, make him fall asleep. Like... (laughs) I thought he fell asleep and she used the magic to like keep him asleep, which isn't that much different than what you said, but feels like a little bit less extreme of a magic. (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. But it also, she like kind of seduced him. Like she, at Mm -hmm. this point, thinks he's trying to kill her and like has taken advantage of all these other women. And I know she still has like a physical attraction to him and we find out later, you know, that they're soulmates or whatever, but I kind of didn't like that she did all that. Or I thought that while she was like doing that, that's how she'd get it off. Not that she just like... I don't know. It seemed unnecessarily like I'm going to like sleep with you. And then once you fall asleep, then I'm going to take this bracelet off. Yeah, I agree. It was it was definitely like very conniving. Yeah. And part of me is like, why don't we just ask more questions or like do more discovery? But I also (laughs) guess she like had one day left at this point because she had overheard that it was like going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And she didn't trust him. She already didn't trust him. Yeah. She, I guess, did what she felt like she had to do. But then we get a very strange scene where... She gives the, the noose to Nariti, and the memory tree catches fire, but then Amar is like, no, those memories were there to protect you. And both Nariti and Amar are like, trust me, no, trust me. Yep. And she ends up choosing Nariti's side, right? And she, like, stabs the tree. And mm-hmm. she realizes Nariti was the voice of the intruder in her room. Yep. The one that was like, I need you to lead me. And, at, like, the whole experience with the memories was just, like, it was hard for me to understand when things were... Because some of the memories, like, pass through her. Some of them become, like, physical objects. Some of them... I don't know. Like, I just, like, had trouble understanding what she knew or who she was at, from this point yeah. in the story on. Totally agree. And what she remembered. I was confused about what she remembered. Yeah. We did get a bit of an explanation about why Amar can't tell her certain things. So there's something where, like, he was going to make her immortal. And then he could reveal the memories of her past life. But, like, he couldn't reveal them to her when she was immortal. When she was, you know. I forgot about that A human. And that's why 
but she heard part of that originally and thought he was trying to kill her, but he was just waiting for her to become immortal because I guess if you stay there two weeks or something, that happens? I don't even know. I don't know either. Like, what made her immortal? I don't know. I think she, well, I think she, because then we learned that, like, she actually was married to Amar in the past and, like, mm-hmm. ruled with him as his queen. So it leads me to believe that she was immortal in a previous life. Like, she was a deity or some kind of goddess. Because don't we learn that at the end where she was like, oh, I'm not actually a forced, yeah. a forced creature. Because at first she thinks she's... Like a fairy, basically. Yeah. An Apsara, mm-hmm. yeah. And then... I thought at the end that we realized that, like, she was actually the queen of the dead with Amar. And so maybe that's why he wanted to make her immortal again? Yeah. I think so. It just, it got confusing because we were, we were mixing three things. There were, like, four things. What was actually happening to her, (laughs) what she was remembering, and what she was being told by Nariti, and what she was being told by Amar. And, like, it was hard to, like, align all four of those things together and understand... What was going on? Yeah. Especially, I mean, like, this reincarnation idea is so interesting, but, like, and some of this might just be also, like, us being less familiar with the mythology of this part of the world and, and some of that, like, maybe for other people, they're like, yeah, I grew up on these stories. This is, like, how the magic works. You guys are idiots. Right. But it was, it's not something I've been exposed to before, so it was just a little hard to follow. Yeah, I agree. And I think it could have been maybe just told in a way that was a little bit clearer, Well, again, she writes so beautifully, but it's almost hard to, like, because some of the words are, like, so imagery-focused, it's hard to know what's, like, a description versus what's, like, a flowery way of saying something normal or, you know, saying something. (laughs) I don't know. Because I thought, at first when I was reading this, I thought that um, all the other girls in the memory tree were Maya. And I thought that, like, the issue was that Amar keeps finding her in another life and then taking her to his palace and then she continuously is like almost trapped in a cycle where like she figures out that he's gonna try and kill her and she stabs the memory tree and then like ruins everything and it just keeps happening in a cycle so i that's why i'm a little bit confused i'm like was he really collecting other girls or was he just collecting her over and over again in different lives so i think he only found her one of i think this was the second time he found her but they were together for multiple lifetimes before and the first time they were together Nariti started lying and, like, giving false images of him, like, seducing other women while they were together and, like, planning all these ideas to make her start doubting him. But this is also where I, like, again, was having trouble between what was a true memory and what was, like, someone intentionally misleading. So I could be wrong, too, but I thought Nariti was, like, um, back when she was originally the, the queen, showing her things that didn't actually happen to make her doubt Amar the first time around. And then mm-hmm. when he like allowed her choice to be and I'm jumping ahead a little bit we find out later that there was or we hear about the betrayal but we didn't know what it was until later and the betrayal had something to do with one of her decisions about like someone's fate or next life had been questioned and Amar basically was like do trial by fire Mm -hmm. and she felt betrayed by that because she thought he wasn't like trusting her or standing up for her whereas he believed in her choice and thought that it would prove it and like all would be well. It couldn't be questioned if she passed this test. And again, just like kind of a communication breakdown. But then all these other like doubts were being planted by Naridi at the same time. And uh, they like didn't come back together after that. I was just, yeah, it was hard to like track between the multiple lives and the lies and the like what was real and all of that was hard. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And then like 
when she finally escapes from Naraka, that's when I got super confused because I didn't know what she remembered and what she didn't. Mm-hmm. And But she had like this onk stone mm-hmm. that contained some of her memories. Just a couple? Like two or three? I, I was kind of confused know. by what had stayed because they weren't her life memories. They were her previous life memories, right? Yeah, I think so. And this is what like, I don't know. I got confused too because when she has that memory of the woman giving Amar a blossom mm-hmm. and she's like jealous because she's like oh he loved this woman and mm-hmm. and we learn out la- later that it was actually her like it was her giving Amar the blossom but she didn't recognize herself so I was like why can you recognize yourself in some memories but not others because she recognized herself in the memory tree when she was playing with Nariti or when she was sisters with Nariti and she recognizes Nariti like she like doesn't remember but she's like oh I like love this girl or this is my sister but yeah doesn't recognize herself yeah it was just it I agree it was confusing and like I buy the idea that like memories are confusing and that sometimes like you know you can be lured by a memory that's false Mm -hmm. but in the space of a you know 374 page book like you gotta you gotta simplify it for us (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I just needed more clearly signals that maybe I didn't pick up on right away. I will say I I got confused with the memory part at this point, but I did like... So when she stabs the tree, Amar's also like, come and save me or come rescue me or I need you. Mm -hmm. What did he say? I forget what he said exactly. Because he loses... He was like, I will lose my memories too. Yeah, which is what Naridi wanted all along. Right. Well, does she... See, here's the other thing. At this point, I had no idea what Naridi wanted. Because I was just like, are you just creating chaos? Like, Yeah, because she was referred to as like bringing chaos and destruction wherever she goes. But I didn't know if that was just like who she was or if she was had vengeance for something at this point or what. Yeah. And also like I need a better motive than just I want to create chaos. Well, especially because we, rem- we remember enough that they were like as tight as sisters. And if this truly was, exactly. if Amar was really the love of her life, like what happened there? <laughs> Yeah, so at this point, I was, I agree with you, I was also very confused. And then Maya realizes that she's dressed as a Sadfi, which is a woman who is basically an outcast. Like, you're considered the walking dead, essentially, which I thought was, um, like, a pretty interesting concept. But people are, like, kind of repulsed by her. But also, like, they're treated almost like prophets or, like, mm-hmm. it's sort of like they reject the world and I don't even know how to, I love, I'm trying to think of a comparison. I don't have a good comparison. People, like, will still, if you ask for anything, people will give it to you to avoid getting cursed, right? Isn't that what they were saying? Yeah. So I looked up a little bit about it. So it's oh, a Sanskrit term that literally means virtuous woman. So it refers to women who have renounced all their worldly possessions and are just are choosing to live apart from society to focus on their spiritual life. Okay. And there's a man equivalent called a sadhu. And both names come from the root word sad, which means to gain power over or to reach one's goal. And typically women choose this lifestyle after being widowed. Hmm. I love this idea, again, throughout this book, in different ways, her identity is sort of this, like, not quite fully human identity. Right. You know, for various reasons, even back in the original castle, and then now while she's, like, partially immortal but not fully immortal, and then also this identity that she's taken on that's kind of, like, rejected normal life, and I just, like, thought that was interesting that it, like, kept coming up in different ways, like, the ways that she was somewhat outside of life or death she was kind of like in between (laughs) yeah she's apart 
from mm-hmm. society. So I, I, I liked that. I thought this was like fitting that she, you're right, yep. has this role that's apart from society and is, and is not integrated. Mm-hmm. And it actually says that Sadhvis devote their lives to meditation, yoga, spiritual pursuits. Some of them live in isolation, but they're almost always separate from or on the fringes of society. And the ultimate goal of this lifestyle is to achieve spiritual liberation, which is also known as moksha. So I liked everything about this, except I didn't understand how she ended up here dressed like this. Exactly! I was so confused about that. But once I just accepted that that was what happened, then I like was like, okay, I'm on board. This is cool. Let's go with it. But like, as far as like stabbing the tree and then she like wakes up in a cemetery dressed as a sad V, I was like, I don't understand why A led to B, but okay. Yep, I'm with you. I totally agree. But then we meet a really great character. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love this horse. I know. <laughs> Camilla. Camilla is like... <laughs> At first, I was like, this is like way over the top. Like, we just came from such a serious place. And now we have a talking horse who is a flesh-eating demon who wants to eat everyone. <laughs> And, like, just the humor. It reminded me so much of that. What's the uh, series we read that was, like, kind of set in medieval Russia? Oh, The Bear and the Nightingale? Yeah, and the horse and that. I don't know why. I was like, these horses would be friends. They're both so yes. funny. And they're both, like, good companions. And just something about it, like, brought me back to that as well. And I just, I loved it. It really helped bring me back into the story, I think, too. Like, I mean, it was a whole yeah. different place. But I just, A, she needed someone or something else to like help her on her journey and it just it was so funny to me yeah and we needed humor yeah the the maybe queen definitely not a sad v or like just like all the names (laughs) that she would use to be like you might be lying to me but i'm not entirely sure (laughs) and i liked how they went from like really not trusting each other to like the horse really liking her and like wanting to protect her and them becoming friends but even the way they'd like deny it kind of like oh well Yeah. yeah i'll just come and like help eat anyone that you need just because I want to eat people not like because I actually <laughs> want to hang out you. with you yeah <laughs> yeah I, I really liked Kamala um then we also meet Aravata the elephant guardian who is like the guardian to the underworld and yeah at this point <laughs> at this point we have a new goal so Maya realizes that she's been duped and she wants to find her way back to Amar Mm-hmm. But the elephant's guardian says that you can only enter the other world through invitation, proving yourself worth or sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And he tells Maya that she's like holding on to the ghost of her past. She's carrying something and she needs to let it go before she can enter. I like that logic. What I <laughs> didn't fully, I don't know. I just like was struggling with motivation at this point I think this just goes back to my confusion around what memories she still had because like when she stabbed the tree all the memories came back to her but then they fled again so she like remembered that she cared for Amar but didn't actually remember their relationship or like why I just like struggled to be like okay why have you decided that like literally the guy like 10 minutes ago you were thought was trying to kill you and were willing to like you know burn this place to the ground literally for Mm -hmm. now you're like oh now I have to go save him is it just because she realized that she shouldn't have trusted Nariti so therefore she should have trusted Amar or was it that she it must have been it was something about the memories coming back or was it that's a good question and I agree with you like motivation was a little dubious at this point because I didn't know what she knew and Mm-hmm. I feel like you'd have to have your memories in order to be motivated to go save someone or go be with someone. Yep. And that's like the whole 
thing with like memories get really messy when you use them in this way in stories because like your credibility kind of is dependent on memory and it it makes it tricky for readers to care I would say because like well it's hard if the reader remembers stuff but the character doesn't and you're like but the character knew it originally like it's one thing if we over if we like see a scene that the character wasn't there for but yeah it was just confusing that like she it was through her remembering that we were told about certain things but then it was gone and I don't just keep coming back to the same issue I don't know why it was so I think part of it also again was because I took a few days off so it was just like such a different world and like getting back into it with everything going on made it hard but but I felt the same way because like I feel like if you're like writing about this in a story can really trap you Mm -hmm. in terms of the plot because you need certain things for a plot to make sense and if you start messing with memories and all of a sudden like you still have some memories but not all then it's like it's kind of a shoddy case for like proving why your character is doing something at all Mm -hmm. and but you, but yet you still need to like move the plot forward, and and so yeah, I struggled with that too. Like I understood why she had to do things in order to like make the story work, but you lose a lot of it when your character doesn't have any motivation, and you're just almost doing things for like the sake of a of a plot moving forward. Yeah, I almost wish like parts one and part two had been the two books because everything ends so cleanly Mm. after this part anyways and we had just like gone into a little bit more depth and understood like described in a little bit more like explicitly detail about like especially like changing scenes and like the memories Mm -hmm. and like some of these characters with different names and stuff too and like it it just it was almost like happening so fast that it was hard to like keep track of like where we were physically where we were mentally, where, or, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally, like all these things were happening so fast. And part of me liked that because I liked that things were moving the whole time, but it was, it was a little hard to keep but when up. when it moves and doesn't make sense, yeah, then you went into trouble. And like, yeah, I think it would have helped if it had been slowed down and explored a little bit more. And also like, I don't know, I feel like I wish we had been able to spend more time with Nuriti than we did because... Yeah. Even towards the end, she gets a glimpse of why Nariti was so upset with her, right? So she was in love with a man who died in battle, and she was kind of begging Maya in this other life to save him. And Maya was like, I can't, like, my hands are tied. Like, I am the queen of the dead. Like, this is the decision I have to make. He still died. I can reincarnate him. I can tell you where he goes. You can find him again. But he still has to die. Yeah. And one of the big issues was he, because he sinned in his past life, he was cursed to come back as a mortal. And at this point, she was, I guess, the queen. So she was, at this point, a deity. And I think that was, like, the big issue, was she was upset that, that he was, her lover was going to come back as a mortal for his crimes. But, like, we... I thought those were two different issues. So maybe this is me missing something. Because I thought oh. the guy who was coming back as a mortal was the one that, like, everyone was, ups- like, the general, I don't even know who these people are, but some other population was upset by, and, like, that's why she had to do the trial by fire, and it was someone... Oh, maybe you're right. But... And this is where, again, because then did Nariti ever find her lover again? Or did she just get so mad that she, like, went on? Like, I agree. I wanted more of her back. And maybe we'll get that in the second book. Maybe the second book will be, like, focused on Nariti. I'd actually be pretty intrigued by that. I would, too. And I even wanted more of their, like, actual friendship. Because we're just, like, told over and over again that they're, like, sisters. But we didn't see any... 
we just see her tricking her really yeah or like being mad at her and I like wanted to see some of those moments where you're like oh yeah there was genuine affection there at some point because right now Nariti is just a villain yeah that's all she is and I think like now at least we have a reason for why she was upset with Maya but we Mm -hmm. still have no reason to care about her and that's unsatisfying for me as a reader like but Maya especially because Maya still like kind of cares about her exactly exactly yeah Yeah. sorry I jumped ahead too (laughs) okay I did love though I sort of felt like we didn't need it from a story standpoint like again from motivation I'm like if you're gonna go save Amar why are we kind of getting sidetracked by this but I loved when she went back and like saw her half-brother who's now the king or the Raja and her half-sister who she had thought had died because she found the bloody necklace that she left with her sister and like learned that all this time had passed and all these things so she had assumed she had died but um Gori has actually like grown up and like become this warrior princess who's like loved by the people and like all like I don't know I just I love seeing that and seeing that glimpse into her life and I'm actually that's another thing I'm still curious about like was she successful did she come back safe are they like I don't know but I thought that scene was so cool. Yeah. And because she was like trained as a soldier and then she fell in love with one of the warriors who fought in the war but never returned. Mm-hmm. So her deal is she needs to go back and like rescue him. Mm-hmm. Again, though, like I totally buy that this is now Gari's motive. Like she wants to go save her lover. But like, who is this lover? I don't know who he is. Why should I yeah. care about him? Like, I just wish that. I wish the story had been slowed down a little bit so we could get better glimpses into characters and and care more about them. Like, if we had maybe seen him as a child, too, or had some inkling of, like, why they need to be together. Like, why is it so important that she goes and rescues him? Like, just for her to say, like, oh, he's this off-page character that I love. I'm like, okay, well, that's good for you, but for me as a reader, it's, like, kind of disappointing. And it didn't really move Maya's quest forward at all. No. <laughs> like, it was it was nice. Like, I liked seeing, like, revisiting her home and stuff, but it didn't actually help her do anything. And that and in that sense, I was sort of like, why did we just spend this time here? I did think it was interesting that we get to see Mother Dina again. Yeah. She didn't recognize Maya at all, right? It was just at the very end, Gory did? or Well, that's my other problem. I don't think 10 years is enough to not recognize someone. I mean, I would agree. Especially... <laughs> When, like, you've given hints. Because didn't she, like, give a hint or, like, reference some... Or, yeah, she, like, showed her where the shoes were that she had stolen 10 years or however many years before. And, like, there were a couple other things where I was like, come on. With that hint, you wouldn't, like, look closely and be like, you actually look a lot like her. This is odd. And I would believe it, let's say, if Maya had been a child when yes. she went when she left. Like, if she had been, like, 8, 9, 10, even, I would believe it. But she was 17. She was 17. Yeah. Like, I and she says she I looks older, look but not, I know me too. <laughs> like, I'm I actually saw a picture like, from seven years ago, which to be fair isn't ten years ago. But I was like, that looks. Like, I was wearing the same outfit like two days ago, like because it was, I was like <laughs> in sweats and a t-shirt. I'm like, I literally wore that outfit yesterday. Well, I it made me it made me think about it because I have three really good friends who live in Italy who I made friends with when I lived there, but we hadn't seen each other for ten years. And I finally went back to visit with them like a couple years ago and it had been like 10 years had gone by. And the first thing all of them said was, you are the same. Like (laughs) as soon as they saw me, they were like, you're the same. Like you haven't changed. And I felt exactly the same way. So when this happened, I was just, I couldn't suspend my disbelief. I was like, no, I'm sorry, but 
that doesn't make sense. And and that's when I, I started questioning, like, well, maybe she is in a different body. Like, has she been reincarnated? And, like, she looks different. But even she herself says, like, oh, no, like, my, my no- I grew into my nose and, like, my forehead was slightly different. Like, she looks a lot more like her mom. Mm-hmm. So I had big problems with that. <laughs> and to that point, like, maybe because Gory had been so young when she left – like, it was harder for her to remember. But you would think Mother Dina, especially with these, exactly. like, kind of hints, and if she looked just like the mom who Mother Dina knew. The other thing I was thinking of was maybe she did recognize her because she does say something like, or she does talk about how she repented for how she treated Maya. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we know that she is someone who Gari trusts very much. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, like, maybe she does recognize her and she just is too prideful to admit it, but she's, like, kind of pretending like she doesn't recognize her to to make it easier for herself to apologize i don't know yeah but anyway so then we get to like the big climactic scene where maya finds nariti again and learns that nariti actually wants to marry amar and become queen of the underworld but even more than that i think her motivation for that is to have the power to she wants to like get rid of death as a whole right yeah this is where I, I was, I like, kind of confused, because she wanted to, like, release all these monsters from, like, the Night Bazaar to, like, hmm. go and eat the humans, but she also was trying to, like, eliminate death. And part of and that, I thought, was related to, like, oh, yeah, because she didn't want her lover to die, but I just, like, was kind of con- confused by her motivation, too, or her end goal. I agree. I didn't, I didn't really know what she wanted, aside from marrying Amar, like, because she put that hunger curse on everyone, or, mm-hmm. like, an, an illusion of hunger on everyone. But I didn't really know why, except for the fact that she was going to, like, send them into the mortal realm to, like, destroy people. Again, it was, like, chaos and destruction, but why? What To what end? Yeah. And I also didn't like that Maya had to sacrifice her last onk stone. So, like, to gain access to the underworld, she had to sacrifice her last memory. And so then I was like, wait a minute, if this is your last memory, like, how do you care about Amar? <laughs> and also, it just, like... It was kind of funny. I mean, it reminds me of, I guess, uh, Wizard of Oz, right? Like, oh, all I had to do was, like, tap my shoes and say, there's no place like home. And, like, I could have done that, like, an hour and a half ago or whatever. But it's kind of like, if that was the sacrifice she had to make back when she was on the coat. This is where, again, I was like, why did she have to go home in between? Or, like, yeah, something about it. I guess because she was, like, still holding on to her worry about Gari. I think that was part of it. Like, okay. she had to... Yeah, that's fair. ...assure herself that she that Gari was okay. Oh, I liked when Maya went and saw the tapestry again, and she, like, finds her thread entwined yep. with Nariti's, and so she goes to untangle them, and that's when she learns, like, the little glimpse of the backstory we got about her and, and Nariti being sisters. And, like, all the manipulation that took place. And I also thought it was interesting, like, because she sees Amar get stabbed, but she, like, makes that connection that he can't die as long as she's alive because Mm -hmm. like they're so tied and also he's immortal so I I don't know how he could die anyways but regardless the other thing that I struggled with is throughout this book she keeps coming to the realization that she needs to like trust herself and trust her gut and like she has the strength Mm -hmm. to do things and I like that message but I feel like that's also what she did when she trusted Nariti but she was like oh I recognize (laughs) you you're my sister like I'm gonna believe you and we, I don't feel like we acknowledged enough that, like, trusting her gut in that case wasn't actually the right thing to do. Right. <laughs> but regardless, yes, I loved revisiting the threads. I loved how she, like, went through and then, like, broke the mirror thing to, like, buy herself some time. 
She steals Amar's noose back. Yep. That was interesting, too. I, I should have researched this, actually. I was really intrigued while reading it about how... Because, like, whoever has the noose has, like, control over him. Seems like. Right? So that's why he wanted to keep it safe. But then when Nariti has it, she can, like... Because he's, like... Not only does he not remember, but he's, like, basically a shell of himself. And she, like, yeah. seems to be able to, like, say things and he does them. Or, like, he can't really fight it. And that was... He's, like, under a spell. Yeah. I actually thought that was pretty cool. And I wish we had seen a little bit more about how the noose and the magic of that worked. Because mm-hmm. it does end somewhat abruptly, where like Maya and Amar defeat the otherworldly creatures, and then they end up encasing Nariti in a shell of ash and silt. Well, even that final battle, though, I was again confused because I thought once he got his power back, he was just like the king and they'd have to listen to him. But they like did, like all these creatures were like fighting each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just something about, I just like had trouble following certain things. And I wish that we had gotten a better description of the otherworldly creatures because. They were really we've cool. read other and we've read other books where there are um, mythological creatures that make an appearance that are not really from the Western world. So like we read Flame in the Mist and we read Spin the Dawn and uh, Shadow of the Fox even. And there were creatures that made an appearance, but I felt like we got more of a, a or a better description of them in the book. Mm-hmm. And so even though I was not familiar with what a kitsune was, we got like a great description of what that spiritual entity was. And so I was able to follow along better. I feel like in this book, we got a lot of supernatural creatures, but we didn't get a description of them. We just got the name. So she would be like, oh yeah, an an Apsara was here. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And we don't have any description. So like I I had to stop and like look up a lot of the mythological creatures Mm -hmm. and it kind of interrupted the pace of the book. So even if it was just like a quick description of like what these beings were would have made it, I think, a little bit easier to read. Well, and again, I think certain things about her writing is just like so beautiful and descriptive and it mm-hmm. it would have been cool even if I did know what they are to some extent yes I agree I needed it just from like an explanation because I don't I'm not familiar with these terms but there's also just something like I think that she could have like really painted that scene more vividly and mm-hmm. the way she writes I think I would have really enjoyed that picture being painted yeah. for me more explicitly because the first time she was in the other world or the night bazaar or whatever it's called um I feel like she did a better job of, like, kind of describing some of the things she was seeing, and it was, like, just really cool. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. It was Mm -hmm. absolutely gorgeous. And then in the end, this last part, like, I I agree. I was having a hard time visualizing what was happening. Yeah. But, yeah, the the good guys win, and Dorothy gets (laughs) locked up, and Amar and... we've got nowhere to go. Yeah. Everyone's happy. (laughs) What did you research this week? So I looked a little bit into the Hellhounds because... I thought, so again, Kamala, I just loved when she would be like, oh, the death guy was here and he left something behind and she's like, oh, the hellhounds. And then I forget how she described it in the book. She was talking about who they eat. Because they're Amar's messengers, right? Yes. So she go, She was like, yes, they were four eyes, tongues like lashes, fun to kick, prone to chasing and nervous flop sweat. They chew on bones, but only the tibias and femurs of virgins with mixed eyes, preferably when one eye is black and the other is green. And I just, like, love this, like, very detailed description of something that she was, like, sensing across the world or whatever. And I was thinking about it, and even though, like, I've heard the term hellhounds, and I do have this vision in my mind from other mythology, because, like, even, like, 
England has, like, the mythology of hellhounds and stuff, too, you know? Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious about their role in Indian mythology and related to this story. So I looked up a little bit about that. And they are, like, it changes a lot, but a lot of different cultures have, like, some version of the hellhound or the mm-hmm. dog related to death. And sometimes they're, like, a protector, and sometimes they're, like, you know, if you, like, see one or, like, make eye contact with one, you're dead or, you know, things like that. So, <laughs> so it, it changes a little bit. But let's see. So dogs are actually, like, more tied to Indian mythology than I realized. So I guess um, even, like, some of the sites that have been excavated from, like, a really long time ago in India will have dog bones or dog remains Mm -hmm. found near humans to a point where they, like, believe that ancient Indians shared a pretty close-knit relationship with dogs from, like, pretty early on. Oh, wow. And there are also rock paintings in India that have dogs drawn in, like, multiple colors in these, like, prehistoric caves. So I I, I just thought that was kind of cool. I feel like, I mean, I know dogs are, like, awesome now, but just thinking about, like, ancient (laughs) India, I don't associate them with, like, India in my mind necessarily. is. I almost felt like when I was reading some of this, it was, like, the cats in Egypt and, like, the dogs in Mm -hmm. India or something. But, um, so, uh, Lord Shiva has one companion and it's a dog. Like, there's a bunch of gods that basically have dogs in ancient mythology. Well, I think that, like, the, what's the three-headed dog in, like, Greek mythology, Cerberus, the one that, like, guards the underworld, I feel like that has gotten all the attention. So, like, it is interesting to learn that, like, they do feature in other cultures mythology. It's just that one seems to get all the attention. Yeah. Well, so there's hellhounds in myths of Norse mythology, or Norse myths, Greek myths, Indian myths. The Egyptians have a guard dog deity that's, like, a half dog, half man that is related to the afterlife. So, and again, hellhounds are like also like a thing in like English. Um, like throughout England, there were like all these reports about these dogs that were like going into churches and killing people or whatever. So it, it is like interesting that it like makes it across all of these places. Mm. Do you mean Anubis? Isn't that the Egyptian god? Um, yep, Anubis, you're right. Yeah, I did remember that one. <laughs> I'm not very, I'm, again, don't remember <laughs> names from the book we just finished. So the Hindu god of death is Yama and also a dog enthusiast. And <laughs> he supposedly sits on his throne with a dog on each side. The dogs are named Shyama and Sabala. And those literally translate to dusk and dawn. Oh. And the story is that there were a group of Asuras who called themselves Kalakanjas. They wanted to, like, break into Indra's kingdom. So they were building a stairway to heaven. <laughs> Not like the song. Um, and <laughs> they were like almost there and some brick like partway up the staircase came loose and it started to crumble down and all the Asuras turned themselves into spiders so that they could like survive being crushed by the bricks. But the two at the very top who were closest to being there, I don't know exactly why, but they became dogs and they were Ooh. directed by Indra to go and guard Yama's gates. And so because they're not just dogs, but previously Asura dogs, they are, like, super ferocious and considered even, like, worse than the hellhounds of, like, again, English descent or whatever. So they have four eyes each. They have, like, giant noses, flaring nostrils, and they're said to wander about people acting as Yama's messengers, and Yama, again, is the Hindu god of death. Yeah, so I just thought it was, again, cool to, like, think so many different... It's 
don't think of dogs as like associated with death, but it is interesting that all these different places in the world have like had this legend of like dogs and going into the afterlife somehow or protecting the gates of hell or doing something like that. I don't think I associate dogs with death, but I do associate them with guarding something. And True. like that's always kind of been the thing where it's like they guard the border between the mortal realm and like the underworld or whatever. And some of the legends too, they like guide people like to the gates of the underworld or whatever. Like people who have died at like bring, even in this book, there was a little bit of that. I mean, it sounded more vicious, but weren't they like picking up souls and bringing them mm-hmm. through? So that also seems kind of dog-like to me, but it was, it was just interesting. I didn't realize hellhounds were so widespread in various world myths. And did you say that they were Apsaras before they became hellhounds? Yes. Okay, because, I mean, that's actually not what I researched, but I, when I was reading this book, I looked up what those people were because I was just a little bit confused. Oh, no, wait. You said Apsaras, right? So, no, these were Asuras. A-S-U-R-A. Oh, oh okay. So different than the, um, because that was what Nariti was, right? Right. Yeah, the Apsaras are... Um, similar to nymphs they're female spirits of the clouds and waters and they're married to gandharvas and it's like the male equivalent but they are kind of like the performing artists to the gods (laughs) so like the apsaras are like singers and dancers and courtesans and the gandharvas are the musicians and they're like semi-divine creatures does that mean they're immortal or not necessarily well it said there's two types of apsaras there are 34 specified, and then 10 of them are divine. But they are like beautiful, supernatural female beings that are really known for art and dancing. And they um, they dance to the music made by the Gandharvas, and they usually perform in the palaces of the gods to like entertain them. I did like seeing when Nariti was like hypnotizing those children or whatever and like how she was like graceful and beautiful and like like that was kind of interesting to me. So Asuras, which is what the dogs were before they became these dogs. So they are powerful superhuman demigods with good or bad qualities. So I think they might be more powerful, but I don't really know how things compare. Very cool. But yeah. So what did you research? So I researched Child by Fire. <laughs> Love it. Of course I did. Um, and it's a type of trial by ordeal, which is like a judicial practice where either the guilt or innocence of an accused person is determined by subjecting them to some kind of painful ordeal um, or some kind of dangerous experience. So is the thought that they'll confess instead of go through the ordeal? Or is, the, or yeah, is this like... Maybe. Um, a witch trial? Or is this more like witch trial kind of level? Very similar to a witch trial. So okay. like in medieval Europe, trial by combat was really popular. The whole premise is that God will help the innocent mm-hmm. by somehow performing a miracle or intervening to, to make sure that the innocent person doesn't die. Uh, it actually dates back to like the Code of Hammurabi, which is kind of cool. Hmm. So trial by fire, they said probably arose from the concept of how fire can be a purifying influence because we've heard of like you know for things to grow sometimes you have to like burn it all down mm-hmm. but really trial by fire was torture so what they were i also feel like at least now we think of like you know devil lives in like the fires <laughs> of hell so you think like if you survive fire like it's not like oh god freed you it's like oh you're the devil 
Right. Well, in this case, the accused would be made to walk a certain distance, usually nine feet um, or a certain number of paces, over red hot irons or Ooh. holding a red hot iron. I would be so bad if I were alive in the medieval times. I oh, like would gosh. not have survived very long at all. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, and, not tough I mean, enough. The things that people quote unquote did wrong in order to prove they're innocent was just a load of bananas. Like, oh, I'm sure there were so many examples of women who had to like prove their purity by doing trials of fire, which is like really disturbing. So usually, what happened was these poor people would be made to carry hot irons or walk over red irons, and what they would do would they they would complete the task, and then of course they would be horrifically burned, but. Yeah. They would bind the wounds and then open it up three days later and examine it. And a priest normally would examine the wound and say, oh, God intervened and it's healing. Or you'd open the wounds and it would be festering and, you know, infected. And then in that case, you would be guilty. So basically you have to survive torture and then you'd have to bribe a priest to lie for you. No, I mean, not (laughs) even that. Like you have to go through torture and then hope that your body heals correctly. Or, and then if yeah. it doesn't, oh you're deemed guilty. That And then what? Then you're probably put to death in some equally horrible way. Probably. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Um, Kunigunde of Luxembourg was accused of adultery and proved her innocence by walking over red-hot irons. And Peter Bartholomew, the um, mystic during the First Crusade, went through an ordeal by fire in 1099 by his own choice because he wanted to disprove a charge. He, like, discovered the Holy Lance or something, and people were like, oh, we don't believe you. So he wanted to, like, prove that he wasn't lying. And he died. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And basically, trial by ordeal was adopted in the 13th century to prove the innocence of accused, usually in cases of treason or adultery, that kind of thing. Um, but also to prove that they were not using magic or something to get through it. So, like, that's kind of how it became tied to witch hunts. That was often, like, a trial by water, though, where they'd, like, throw you in the river, and if you drowned, you were innocent kind of thing. The logic behind witch trials is, like, so goofy that, yeah, it's like, if you pass this test, then you're a witch. Otherwise, you die, and we're all sorry that we accused you. Right. It also, it just reminds me, I mean, like, part of me is like, okay, if you really have, like, such a strong belief in God, and at the time, like, so much you can't explain with science and other things that we have today, and you truly believe, like, God will protect the innocent or, like, you know, Mm -hmm. step in. Like, I sort of understand that belief, but it just, it also reminds me of this, like, blonde joke that I used to hate because I'm blonde from back in the day where it was, like, this blonde keeps, like, praying to God that she'll win the lottery and then like week after week it doesn't happen it doesn't happen and she keeps praying like there's probably more to the joke that I'm forgetting now but then eventually God shows up and he's like can you help me out here and buy a ticket oh my god (laughs) and it's kind of like yeah I mean like I think I believe in God and miracles and a lot of things but like we're not supposed to go around testing him or like you know like help him out a little bit (laughs) well so then they say in ancient India the trial by fire was known as Agni Pariksha, in which Agni, the fire god, was invoked by a priest using mantras. And then after the invocation, they would build a pyre and light it on fire, and the accused would have to sit on it. Oh my goodness. And then, according to Hindu mythology, the fire god would either preserve the accused person, proving that they were innocent, 
or if not, the god would not intervene and the person would be burned to ashes. So that's even like a more difficult situation to <laughs> remedy. Like, yeah, at least if they're just inspecting to see whether a wound healed, like you have a at least some kind of a chance, maybe. Yeah. Um, they said a lot of times brides would have to walk with red hot irons in their hands with a plate just made out of leaves or dough or something to like shield her hands from the heat but like not a lot of protection and then if her hands were burnt she was considered to be impure oh man yeah in the great hindu religious epic the ramayana the character sita who we learned about in the last episode she uh, is rescued from a demon and has to prove her purity by a child by fire i would like to um skip that you can just call me impure i'll not go through any trials by fire thank you very much i know really it sounds horrific it's terrible um there was also trial by water which was equally bad where they were they would put a stone in the bottom of a cauldron that was filled with boiling water and you'd have to reach in and grab the stone and then same thing like if you were if your wound healed you were fine but most of the time like your skin would be completely burned off and like there was no coming back from that so i'm not tough enough for any of this no oh my god i am a wimp i mean and that's what's so crazy like some people actually chose to go through it themselves like Okay, in 1498, the Dominican friar Girolamo Savignola, he was the leader of a movement in Florence who claimed that he had, like, prophetic visions. And he willingly was like, oh, I'll prove this by undergoing a trial by fire. So he, like, wanted to prove the sanctity of his mission or whatever. And it was a complete disaster. So they, like, got everything ready, and then there was a sudden rain pour that doused all the flames. So the... (laughs) The event had to be canceled because it started raining and it was taken by onlookers as a sign from God that this guy was full of crap (laughs) and the Inquisition arrested him (laughs) and he was convicted of heresy and he was hanged at the piazza. Oh man. I know. So like not funny, but sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at that, but it was just like he willingly was like, I'm going to prove my worth by willingly undergoing this trial by fire and then it didn't even happen and he was killed because of a rainstorm i mean and clearly it was just like when people believe something and what you did they're gonna come up with a reason to you know i mean oh especially if you're believing in signs from god like you can interpret signs to mean all different kinds of same with like statistics right you can like make numbers look a certain way or whatever but so anyway that was my research of course it was why am i not Mm. surprised (laughs) i looked up puppies i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I looked up torture. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, should we talk about the next book? Yes. I don't even have any predictions, so should we just... Neither do I. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen, but I think we should read up to chapter 22, which is called No Touching Asha. Sounds good. Do you want me to read a little bit about the... Yes. Will you read the back to us, please? This mystery book? Yeah. <laughs> okay. She is the princess of Bharata. Captured by her kingdom's enemies, a prisoner of war. Oh, okay. I thought we were talking about Maya. Are we not? Nope. Now that she faces a future of exile and scorn, Gari has nothing left to lose. But should she trust... Whoa! Should she trust Vikram, the notoriously cunning prince of a neighboring land? Is he he the thread guy? Yeah! Okay. We didn't even talk about that. I wonder, is that the person she's in love with? But wasn't he from the opposing army, or was he... I don't know. Okay, keep reading. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Vikram, he promises her freedom 
in exchange for her battle prowess. Together, they can team up and win the Tournament of Wishes, a competition held in a mythical city where the Lord of Wealth promises a wish to the victor. It seems like a foolproof plan until Gari and Vikram arrive at the tournament and find that danger takes on new shapes. Poisonous courtesans, mischievous storybirds, a feast of fears, and twisted fairy revels. New trials will test their devotion, strength, and wits at every turn. But what Gari and Vikram will soon discover is that there's nothing more dangerous than what they most desire. Okay, I'm cool with this. I like it. It's a completely different story. This is good. And I actually, like, want to hear more about their lives and stuff. But now I have questions, like, are we even going to see Maya at all in this? I don't want to not see her at all. I bet she'll make a little appearance. (laughs) In Camelot. (laughs) Okay, cool. I'm excited again. Okay, same world. Some characters we've met and, and all of that. So, okay. Brand new story. Is it my turn to tell a joke? I think it's mine. Okay, good. I heard this one on the radio and I thought it was funny. Okay. What do you call a cow that just gave birth? Um, I don't know. Decaffeinated. Oh. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that, like, was not what I was expecting at all, and I thought it was hilarious. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, me either. It's a little too clever. Um, um, if you guys cool. want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. Yeah, let's... Keep reading this story, and um, gosh, we're almost done for the entire year, which is nutso, but yeah, let's finish the series that's not really a series. <laughs> Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.